Welcome to Discover Healthier. Everything you need to know about health brought to you by Discovery Health. I'm Azania Musaka. You can join the conversation as we explore some of the most pressing matters in the healthcare environment today. A wide variety of topics and specialist guests will empower you to care for your health now and in the future. It's my absolute privilege to be talking to Professor Andrew Ross. He's a principal specialist in family medicine at the University of KwaZulu-Natal, and he founded the Umtombo Youth Development Foundation back in 2001, when it was first called the Friends of Mosfold Trust. Also on the line with Professor Ross from KZN, where the Umtombo offices are based in Hillcrest, is Ntombim Kize, student manager at Umtombo. It's such a pleasure to have you both on the podcast today. Um, so let me start with you, Andrew. Just tell us how you came to work in rural healthcare, because rural healthcare is not an area that many doctors would, you know, just wish to go and work in. How did you come to work there? So I grew up in a Christian family. Uh, my, my father went and worked as a missionary doctor in Nigeria, and then we uh, moved to Ethiopia. And then they moved to South Africa. He took up a post at the medical school here in Durban, which was uh, teaching people to become doctors. And so that was kind of like my background. And I went into medicine, in a sense, to serve and felt that one of the areas that I wanted to serve was in a rural area. So after I graduated, I got some experience in a number of fields. And then I, in fact, looked for a job in a rural area. I met someone who had been working at Mosfeld, and he said, there's a need why didn't you apply? And so I ended up at Mosfeld. But certainly it wasn't the normal trajectory of where South African doctors ended up. Mm, and I understand that rural healthcare comes with a lot of challenges. What are some of the things you were confronted with at Mosfeld? So they are obviously shortage of staff. Often we think of rural healthcare only in terms of doctors, and often it's difficult to find doctors. But there are other shortages. You know, we didn't have a dentist. So when I went there, I had to learn how to pull teeth. We had a pharmacy assistant rather than a pharmacist. There's issues around access to healthcare, communication. So if you go into labor at Eshishene, which is far away from the hospital, the chances of you actually making it to the hospital are small because of the issues of distance, transportation, communication. So I think that there are lots of issues. And then there's other, other major issues in rural areas around water, sanitation, uh, job opportunities, you know, the list just goes on and on. Mm, and I understand in those early days, a lot of uh, other doctors left and you had to find a way, you had to make sure that you're still able to provide a service. Sure. So when I got there, we were five doctors at a 250-bed uh, district hospital. And we were like that until about the middle of 1992. And then three doctors left, told the provincial uh, Department of Health that they were leaving. We asked them if they were making a plan. They told me, because I went to see them personally, don't worry, it's all under control. But when the rubber hit the road, Ian left, Tom left, Rick left, and then it was only Dr. Hears and myself. <laughs> so then we started scrambling around to make a plan. How do we find initially doctors, but how do we find staff to run a hospital? Because if you're only two trying to run a 250-bed hospital, it's just not sustainable. 
Yes, not sustainable at all. So was this then, this moment was, was the seeds, the beginnings of Umtombo Youth Development Foundation. How did it all start? And maybe explain the model as well. Sure. In a sense, after we went out to, I had contacted Dr. David Wilkinson, who was at Sabisa Hospital, and he said to me, Andrew, you need to find your own staff. Don't depend upon the Provincial Department of Health. And that if you put an advert in the South African Medical Journal, you won't find anybody, but you've got to go through that process and then put an advert in the British Medical Journal. You'll find young English graduates who want to travel and use their expertise in, in South Africa. And so we started to do that. We put adverts in the British Medical Journal. We had people who would contact us. We were able to get them registered and get work permits for them, and they would come and work at the hospital. So in a sense, that's how we survived for most of the 1990s. It did get increasingly difficult to find staff because you had to, um, you could no longer as easily recruit. People needed to go through the foreign workforce because there was a concern that South Africa was poaching doctors from other parts of Africa. And it was also difficult to get them registered with the Health Professionals Council. So those are the two issues that became difficult. And so then this idea, kind of like, wow, in Australia and Canada, they have shown that if you take rural students, they're more likely to come and work in a rural area. And so then that idea started to go, wow, we're struggling to find doctors. If we could find local South Africans who come from this area and they could train to be healthcare professionals, they would understand the language, they would understand the culture, and if they choose to stay in an environment like this, that would be like a, a win for everyone. Um, so in a sense, that led to kind of, okay, how can, how can we make this happen? Is, is it possible? That's an incredible insight, and clearly it was a game changer. Absolutely. But there were enormous challenges, though, because everyone told me in the late uh, 1990s that this was kind of like a pipe dream. You know, that education in rural areas was so poor that no one would ever make it to university. In fact, we had a little test done with one of the Anglo at a, a bursary program for rural students who were doing mining. And so they set a test for the schools in our particular area of work that they should have covered by June. And that we asked the top students from the eight high schools in the area. And the top, top mark was 40%. The second mark was 25%. And it went all the way down to three. And they said, oh, you'll never find anybody who will get to medical school. So that was one. Education was a massive problem. And then the second issue was people said, oh, you know, passing at university is really difficult. And in fact, there were some statistics from, um, I think, the Weekly Mail and Guardian showing that only about 40% of people who went to university completed. And they think, well, you're taking rural students, poor education, what is the chance that they will complete? And then the third big issue is very expensive. You know, if you spend 60 or 80,000 rand per student per year, how many students are you going to be able to support? How are you going to find that money? And then the fourth thing they said to us is, well, the students, they'll take your money, they'll promise you the world, but they won't come back. And so if you're trying to have a solution to your staffing problems, then, you know, bursaries are problematic. Those <laughs> 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 some of the challenges that they put on. But we felt that ah, it was such a dream worth pursuing. So we kind of like took everyone's advice and said, well thanks for the advice, we're going to do it anyway. We're going to give it a crack, even if it kills us in the process. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, just, we, I just love how you, how you were determined to overcome these incredible odds. So knowing what you knew then, what kind of model did you build? What did, what did you imagine Mtombo to be? What is it? 
sure. So I think when we started, we, we didn't have a very clear model. As we've gone along, it's become much more clearer. So the model is really the starting of rural district hospitals. And we've got that at the center of what we're trying to do. We, we're training not to empower people just to empower them. We're training people so that they can come back and work in a rural district hospital and provide a service. Because when I was the medical superintendent, that was the focus. I needed a doctor. I needed a dentist. I needed a pharmacist. So the district hospital is at the center of that um, model. And that we want the hospital to be choosing people that they will want to come back and work at the hospital. So they're choosing. It's difficult to look far down the road because I'm like, okay, in five years' time, am I going to need a pharmacist? Am I going to need a a radiographer? Am I going to need a social worker? Who am I going to need? And then let me choose now and support them in their training. So we had the hospital was doing the training. We wanted people to come and do voluntary work at the hospital, A, so people could get an idea of what it was they were getting into. You don't want to get into third-year pharmacy and then discover, oh, I don't like this. So we wanted people to come do some voluntary work, really meet people who were doing the job so that they knew what they were doing before they got into the program. So the hospital was at the center, the hospital was at the choosing, everyone needs to come and do voluntary work at the hospital, okay? And then we provided support to them at university because we understood that it was challenging for rural students with their uh, less than ideal educational background. It was challenging for them to succeed at university. And again, these were bright students, hardworking, committed, but sometimes just lacked the ability to find the right key to succeed. And mm-hmm. so again, a really great example, uh, someone called Tipa Manda, he, he went to the University of Zuland. He's in fact a clinical psychologist at the moment. He's finishing off his PhD. But when he went to the University of Zuland, his English was terrible and he failed a number of assignments. And um, he went to his professor. And one of the things we really, part of the mentoring is we want students to to own their problems, go and see someone, talk about your problem, own it. So the professor said, your English is really bad. You need extra English lessons. So Sipa Mandler went to extra English lessons, not because he was a bad student, because I think sometimes extra lessons are there for the bad students, there for the weak students, there for the failing students. And what we try to do in our, in our mentoring is to say, if you've identified a problem, you are a good student. Sipa Mandler was top of his class. He was a good student, but he had a problem identify your problem, find a solution, and then move on. So he says, I went to extra English lessons twice, and then I knew what to do. So you don't have to stay at those extra English lessons, or you don't need to go and see your subject tutor on and on. Once you find the key to succeeding, then you move on. So by the end of his second year, Sipa Madler was the top student in the arts faculty at the university. You know, so he had an issue which he identified. So mentoring is a big, big part of what we're trying to do. Part of the model is also coming back and doing some holiday work at the hospital. So again, universities can be quite stressful environments where you're always being assessed. You feel that if you ask some questions, someone will identify you. And so we, we wanted our, our students to come back and work in the hospital during their holidays so that they can speak English. They can get used to working with other healthcare professionals. The whole idea of teaching around professional values, come on time, be reliable, do what you say you'll do, know where you're going to be. So those professional values, but also then getting used to seeing patients, presenting them to other healthcare professionals is then a learning opportunity in a less stressful environment. And so again, students would come, test patients, someone called Tillin Tlantla, in fact, uh, she's a physio, she works with my wife, and she tells the story of 
having uh, assessed the patient during the holidays and discussed a, a plan of how they would manage the patient. And then when she had her exam at the end of the year, it was a very similar patient. And so she was kind of like, wow, that was easy because of the input that I had during the holiday. So we really wanted holiday work to strengthen what they were doing at the university. And then the last part, I guess, of the model is also then trying to ensure that people are able to come back and work because that's a really important thing. So we selected by the hospital, trained and supported partly by Ntombo, but also partly by the staff at the hospital so that you can come back and contribute to the functioning of that hospital. It's an incredible model and it has stood the test of time. Ndombi, your title is student manager. What does the student manager do at Umtombo? So, um, as a student manager, I provide day-to-day support to students, which is really quite broad. So, I will actually consist of two teams at Tombo. So, we have one team that is responsible for recruitment, like educators. Our target audience is students from the rural areas. So, a lot of information and dissemination is also needed. So, what we do is we get our recruitment team to actually physically go out and pull and educate um, the levels about the different health sciences disciplines because that's uh, you know, the other issue. You know, if you think about health, everyone thinks doctor or nurse, but there's all these other disciplines in between, you know, like physiotherapy, radiologists, pharmacists that people aren't really aware of. So it's, it's first having that conversation to say, look, you know, there are a world of health disciplines um, areas that you can follow. And then based on that, students apply to um, the local hospitals. So where we come in as a student support team is one student has registered. It's really looking at looking after the day-to-day needs of the students. Um, because as an organization, we provide comprehensive support. So it's not just we don't just pay students tuition fees only, but it's also making sure that they have their book allowances, you know, rent um, is paid, they have because this is all equally important to make sure that students can, you know, function optimally without having to worry that I don't have food today, you know, I don't have rent today. So it's really looking after um, those needs. But also a fundamental part of our program is also student mentoring. So for everyone who's enrolled in our program, they are allocated a mentor. We have 12 mentors that are based in 16 institutions all over the country. Some of them are based on campus, some of them near campus. And these are the people that live with on a monthly basis that, that, that support them with a variety of issues. So as a student manager, it's making sure that all of these happen, that, you know, a student has a mentor, they've been allocated, and that they are telling them the meetings are happening, and then we get a report back from the mentors as well so that if the issues that we need to be aware of, then we can act on those. Wow. Now, Andrew touched on certain students having that uh, language can often be an obstacle, can be a barrier and an impediment in their learning. But what you're also telling us, Ndombi, is that this is a holistic approach to the students' needs. It's no wonder that you're achieving a 92% pass rate. But how also do you, what are some of the other challenges that students uh, encounter? Because I imagine moving from a rural area and say you're moving a, a town, you're moving provinces, you're moving from a rural area to an urban area. Do other challenges arise as a result of that, a change in environment? 
there's definitely um, a lot of challenges that they face, Zania. You know, firstly, because, you know, there's this assumption that, you know, if you have a person and your fees are taken care of, you shouldn't have any problems, you shouldn't complain. But, you know, the reality is, you know, students and humans like us, they also face a aura of, you know, issues ranging from personal to academic because just the person in school doesn't mean everything is great at home. So it's the personal issues, academic issues, you know, like if you said that, you know, someone is coming from a rural area and, you know, it's a big transition, you're transitioning from high school to university, it's a completely new environment, the way of learning is new. So it's having to transition or it's having to navigate all these different things and making sense um, of them and, you know, in all of this, you know, this is where mentoring really comes in because it's just providing that platform where then you have someone who can help you navigate this issue. And Andrew is saying that I think navigating because just because you have a mentor doesn't mean that uh, you have someone who's going to solve your issues, you know, but rather it's someone who will work with you to identify the solutions because essentially what we want to build also um, with mentorship is that Students need to be able to think for themselves. So the even issues are always the issues. So what do I do? You know, if it's academic issues, so do I need to focus more on academic planning? Do I need to be more proactive if there are issues or if I foresee any challenges? And also, most importantly, holding them accountable because, you know, it's one thing that the student is failing and you said, go see your mentor, go see your lecturer, but it's holding them accountable to say, this is what you said you do. Have you done it? So it's, it's, it's a really important platform in helping them address, you know, the various um, challenges that they issue. But, you know, I think the most important thing is that the platform is there to say, you know, we're just going to not going to speak to do everything, but, you know, how can we build you so that if there are issues, you are resilient and you're able to tackle them and move forward. Mm. So, Ntombi, what are the current stats? Uh, take me through the complement of students that are in the program at the moment. Okay. So, I, the, the, the stats are really great. Since the inception of the program, we have had 428 graduates um, from Ntombi, mm-hmm. varying from dentists to doctors to occupational therapists. And um, specifically this year, we're also supporting various disciplines. We have a total of 189 students. Again, um, in 16 institutions, we have 12 mentors, varying um, disciplines by medical technology, radiographers, nurses, all the health sciences are covered. Wow. Andrew, this must have a huge impact on transforming the health and economic future of the the rural community that these students come from and will be coming back to serve. What can you tell us about the society and the benefits that, that will come out of these different healthcare practitioners, Andrew? So you can answer that on multiple levels. So out of interest, uh, a couple of years ago, we looked at how much it had cost us to train 254 graduates. So we took everyone who graduated between 2009 and 2015. And obviously, there's a cost every year. If you're studying for four years, it's less than if you're studying for six years. It cost us a total of 186 million rand to support those 254 graduates. We worked with a health economist who estimated that these graduates would earn a total of 
16 billion rands, 15 billion rand in their lifetime earnings, which equated to about 4 billion rand at the time we were calculating, and that they would pay up to 4 billion rand in taxes. So just from a macro level, we're saying investing in education is a really, really good return on your money. Um, he had a, a figure of an internal rate of return of 63%. And saying, you know, that if you were to invest just in property and you got a 10% return on your money, you would think you were doing well. If you were investing in something that was a bit speculative, oil exploration, you would want about a 30% return on your money because there was a risk. And so to get a 63% return, he felt was absolutely amazing. It does depend on a couple of things, though. It does depend on students graduating, because obviously if you spend money and they fail, that money is, in a sense, wasted. And then it also depends upon students getting jobs. And so that's the other big plus about Mtombo. Because hospitals are choosing students that they can ultimately see as workers, over 98% of our graduates have, in fact, got jobs. So you hear this figure of South African graduates who don't get jobs. And to that is, I think, a terrible waste. And so our graduates are, are working and that they're getting decent salaries because they're getting permanent, well-paying jobs, usually within the Department of Health. Uh, they have an obligation, a year-for-year -year obligation to us. But when they finish that obligation, they can work in the private sector. They can continue within the Department of Health, they can really go wherever they like, but it gives them a qualification which enables them to get a job. And what we hear from students, a number of things, we hear we are contributing to healthcare delivery at district hospitals. So we're able to interact with our patients because we understand the language. We're able to advise them on nutrition. Franz Mumala, who's one of our early graduates, was instrumental in setting up an optometry program throughout Mkanyagude. He then did work in terms of establishing optometry services throughout the province. Pipa Mandla was very instrumental in setting up clinical psychology services. So our graduates have an impact at a service delivery level. The other thing that we hear stories about, though, is that because I've got a job, I can contribute to my family. My sister is now going to school. My parents have got a house. We've got water at home. There are lots of examples of where students who become graduates are able to use the money that they are earning to support their extended family. And then I've really enjoyed going to weddings because you go to weddings of graduates and you see them. They come in a car. Their friends come in cars. They're nicely dressed. And a lot of these students, when you hear where they've come from, they've come from extremely poor families mm -hmm. where the roof leaked and we went to school in bare feet and when it rained hard and couldn't go to school because the roads were impassable. And their lives and their families' lives have been completely transformed because of the education that they've received and then the meaningful work opportunities that resulted from that. Yes. And Dombi, what have you seen from the neighborhoods, from the communities and how the patients or those that they'll be serving have been impacted? Okay, so I think, you know, there's been a great impact in, in the sense that, you know, with these students being able to, 
succeed and be able to sustain themselves and support their families. You know, the biggest thing is also they're able to break out of positive cycles. So because, you know, Zombie is now a trained nurse and Zombie is able to take care of the family. But, you know, it's a cliche. You know, what I always say to our students, especially our graduates, is that, you know, in a world where we're surrounded by so much negativity, you know, especially in the rural areas, in the township, you know, there's drug abuse, there's alcohol abuse, there's all kinds of crime. It's always important to be a victim of hope because, you know, someone looks at you and says, wait, you know, I know Azania, we went to the same school, you know, I know the family where she comes from, they have the same struggle and they've made it. And so it gives the next person, you know, hope because there's a kid there who might not even talk to you, but they're observing, they're thinking, you know, it's possible, it's possible. So it's, it's something that we can never stress enough the importance of like role modeling in, in communities. I want to talk about the challenge of having the students come back. Has there been a resistance in coming back in certain, with certain students? Um, and also, how do you ensure that they come back to serve? Uh, it's, as you said, Andrew, you cited research from different territories that internationally there's evidence that shows that health science students of rural origin are more likely to live and work in rural areas. But how do you further ensure that? So... We have worked really hard at saying to students right from the beginning, Tombo is about providing services at rural district hospitals and that you need to come back for at least three reasons. You need to come back because you said you would. And we really think it's important that people learn to own what they say. You said you would come back. And so that's a really important reason to come back. Secondly is that we need you to come back to provide a service so that if you are, get to So someone at SSNE, they have to go to the clinic. And if the sister's not there or the sister's drunk or whatever, they still have to go there. Whereas when I've got money, if I don't like the local hospital, I can choose another one. I've got money to choose. Whereas for rural, often very poor indigent people, they have to go to the health service that's provided. And so you are committing to coming back so that service can be provided to your grandmother, to your neighbor, to the people down the road. So we really emphasize that. And then the third thing that we emphasize is that you, in fact, find a contract with us, a a legal obligation committing yourself to come back. And that if you don't fulfill that, either you must pay back the money, and we don't really want the money because we want workers, not money. And so you either have to pay back the money or we will take you to court to get back the money. And that we have been incredibly amazed, I've been incredibly amazed, that the vast majority of our graduates, so we've got over 400 graduates, and probably less than 10 have not come back to fulfill their obligation. And I think that that's an amazing thing. So we talk about it when people are recruited. We talk about it when we see the students. We talk about it we've had in visas where we try and share with everyone the philosophy of Mutombo. We ask our mentors to talk about it. It is important that you fulfill the obligation. The other reason that we say that students need to come back as graduates is that it's difficult to fund if you don't meet your obligations. So when I go to a funder and I say a student will pass, if you fail, it's difficult to fund it the next time. People think it's a waste of money. 
So if I go to fund and say the students will pass and students will come back and then they don't come back, you are in fact preventing others from having the opportunities that you have got. So those are the things that we've emphasized. And, and, uh, and I'm absolutely amazed that the, that the large number of students that have come back as, as graduates. Let's stay with the funding question. How is the funding that you've received from Discovery Fund uh, and the Discovery Foundation helped with Umtombo um, and helped with it becoming the success that it is today? So I, Discovery have been absolutely amazing. You know, when I started, I had lots of enthusiasm and I had lots of passion, but I didn't really have any track record. I could tell you, we're going to choose students, we're going to support them. When they come back, they're going to be contributing. But I had no track record. And I just had this liturgy of problems that everyone had told me. And early on, Discovery put some money into the program. They said, we believe in this. Go for it. So that was amazing. The second thing, I got, a, I got an excellent award at, at the end of 2007, 2008. They gave me a million rand. Now, often when you are fundraising, you write to people and say, I need a million and a half for students, and they send you 20,000 grand and say, good luck, good work, keep going. And so you have to use all of that money to feed. And so I had 50 students. I was working really hard on helping with the selection, visiting students, making sure that the accounts got audited, writing to funders. I was on a treadmill. And we got to about 50 students. Discovery gave us a million rand. And so with some of the excellence award money, we improved Ruth. And Ruth said, essentially, Andrew, you can carry on the way you are. It's killing you. You know, it's too much. I had a full-time job. I was trying to do this part-time. You can carry on the way you are. You could bring it into land. You can show, you've demonstrated over the years that you can find rural students. If you support them, they'll pass, and they'll also come back and work. So you can bring it into land. You've shown that. Or you can employ somebody. And... Um, they can run the organization. So we, in fact, approached Gavin. We had a salary for Gavin McGregor. We asked him if he would come in as the CEO. He would be the first person employed by the organization. He would have to set up all of the kind of the structures and the system. We offered him a, a salary for a year and said he would have to fundraise himself. And so Gavin took that job and that he has been able to grow the organization from 50 students to 250 students who were supporting all in town. He was able to find up to 25 million rand a year, which is what it was costing. And so I would say Gavin saved my life. He really has made um, Tomba what it is today. Structures, systems, um, uh, mentoring, network of mentors supported by someone within the office, sound uh, financial footing. So in a sense, the Discovery Excellence Award saved my life. And that Discovery has continued to support um, Mutombo. They've continued to um, put money towards supporting students. They've had think tanks to kind of think, how can we, uh, how can we take this to scale? So Discovery has been absolutely amazing. That's fantastic. That's absolutely fantastic. I want to talk about legacy for a moment. And Dombi, let me start with you because you had studied development studies. You moved, we wanted to move back to KZN to be closer to family. You are changing lives by being part of this initiative. But how has it also shaped you? So I think changing into the 
from the moment that I had seen the effort. I've always been passionate about working with youth in development. So just looking at the profile in terms of what Ntwombo does, so Christmas student specialist on the area, that really spoke to me because, you know, we always say we provide support to everyone, but rural areas more often than not are always forgotten. And so here we have a specific organization that is going into those areas where not everyone is willing to go finding these students, you know, with all the, the capacity to actually succeed and make a better life for themselves. So for me, I thought it was, it's what was quite striking um, about the organization, and it, that really, you know, interested me in working with Umtombo. Hmm. And Andrew, did you ever think that Umtombo will be what it is today? <clears throat> Never in my wildest dreams. <laughs> you know, we sort of thought, if we can support four new students a year, and even that was a kind of a, wow, if we do this, it's going to be like a miracle. And then we got four, and then eight, and then 10, and then, and then, and then 250, and the fact that there are over 400 graduates, it's kind of like, wow. <laughs> when we thought about the challenges that people put on the table at the beginning, to have 400 over 400 graduates is kind of like, this is this. Absolutely amazing. And the fact also that we are, as Ntombi said, we are taking rural students who went to bad schools and that they have achieved the kind of success that they have done. It, it really says to me there's so much wasted potential in South Africa. There's so much wasted potential. Again, Sifa Manda tells the story of meeting guys by the side of the road in Ingwabumu who said to him, don't even dream you're going to be just here unemployed, no opportunities, because it just, it just doesn't happen for a rural student. And to be able to say, we, we've been able to take rural students who went to just normal rural government schools with all the challenges associated with them, and for them to be able to get a health science qualification, which is no... It's not a gift. It's not an easy degree. <laughs> and they're able to get meaningful jobs. It's just absolutely amazing. You received the Order of the Baobab, a silver award, in 2015. What did that mean to you? Did you reflect on the legacy that you're leaving behind? I don't think that I am the hero in all of these things. I think that the students who have overcome incredible odds, when you hear their stories, and you realize the challenge that it was to go to university and that they have persevered and that they have succeeded. That's why I say we provided a little bit of support. So I'm in a sense humbled here in all of these. We were able to identify students with potential. We provided a supportive environment. We provided kind of like a roadmap. And what we've been able to do is say there is a, a structured roadmap. You work hard. You apply for a course. There's funding available. If you are able to own your challenges and find solutions, and the university is full of people willing to help you find solutions, you can exceed beyond your wildest dreams. And what does the future hold for the Mtombo Youth Development Foundation? And where to from here? The future is, is a little bit uncertain for a number of reasons. So the biggest reason is around pre-education. So... Free education might, in fact, be a kind of a big win for us. It might be, because instead of now having to raise large amounts of money to pay university fees, 
we might be able just to focus on the mentoring. Hmm. Instead of supporting 250 students, we might be able to support 500 or 1,000 or 5,000. I don't know. You know, you can really dream big. So that is one scenario. However, there is the other side of the scenario which says, if education is free now, why would you want to team up with Mtombo? Why would you want to link up with us? When your fees are being paid, your food is being paid, your residence is paid, why would people engage with us in our mentoring program? Why would they do that? And so we might find Mtombo, as we know, no longer exists. So we are slightly at a crossroads, and it's, it's a bit of a struggle for us to know kind of how is this going to work out. So we've continued to select students. NFS is paying um, the bulk of the costs now because of free education. Tom is doing a fantastic work in terms of continuing to mentoring in place. We're looking for reasons why students would continue to work with us. Um, but there is some uncertainty about quite where this is going to land. I really want to thank both of you. I think this has been such an inspiring and inspired conversation. Really, congratulations to everyone who has contributed to the success that is Umtombo today. Thank you, Ndombi. And also especially thank you to you, Andrew. Thank you for your enthusiasm, your passion, your commitment, just for the noble work that you started that will go on to outlive you. Thank you. It's been an absolute honor and privilege to be involved and to meet amazing, amazing people that I would not have met otherwise. We've done you know, an amazing journey for me. Yes, thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Ndombi. Thank you you very much. Awesome. Thanks. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, you'll be moved and inspired by other episodes in the Discover Healthier podcast series, celebrating the achievements of South African medical doctors. Be sure to tune in to hear my interviews with more remarkable medical professionals who've been supported by Discovery's funding and vision for excellence in South African private and public health care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Discover Healthier, brought to you by Discovery Health. Join the conversation on social media with the hashtag Discover Healthier and tag at Discovery underscore SA. You can subscribe to our podcast channel, Discovery South Africa, on your favorite podcast app or visit discovery.co.za to listen to our shows.